Before this podcast begins, we wanted to give you a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard lesson at times and includes themes and discussions of trauma, racism, colonisation and more. It's something you might need to consider before listening. While storytelling can help us understand others and ourselves, we often have to navigate myths and memories that hold conflicts or truths overtaken by others. But for many, understanding their past, their families, their roots, it can be the one thing that brings real connection to ourselves and those around us. In late 2022, Scottish Zimbabwean artist and researcher Natasha Tembizo Rowona programmed an event titled Our Stories Between the Myths and Memories in partnership with The Skinny. Hosted at David Livingston Birthplace in Blantyre, Natasha brought together a wealth of creative practitioners from the Scottish African diaspora to celebrate their contributions to the creative sector. Natasha's aim was to let the project speak to past, present and potential futurists that examine Black Scottish history, culture and identity. And why the location? Well, it placed a spotlight on the work that David Livingston Birthplace are doing as they consider the role of museums within truthful storytelling. My name is Ailey Akaladi. I am the Intersections Editor at The Skinny and over this four-part podcast series brought to you by the magazine in partnership with We Are Here Scotland, you will experience some of the conversations, questions, creativity and reflections that came out of that weekend. Welcome to our stories. In this, our penultimate episode of the series, we're looking at one of the reasons why this podcast came together. It's about the stories we tell each other and ourselves. When Natasha was creating this series, they said it would look at reflecting on the stories that David Livingston Birthplace are telling, the stories artists of the African-Scottish diaspora are telling, and how these can act as bridges between people. Storytelling then became the overall theme. I'm going to look at that in a bit more detail now. You may remember in our first episode, we opened with a brilliant performance from Natasha, where they composed a response to David Livingston's birthplace. As part of that same chapter of the event, Natasha was joined by Clementine Burnley, who we will meet now. Clementine is a mother, public storyteller and community worker. Her short pieces, essays and poetry have appeared in a number of notable publications. She's also been in the final selection for a number of prizes, including the Amsterdam Open Book Prize. She delivered a presentation as part of the event and called it the Toy Box. She wanted to look at how we tell each other about the present that we're living in, the kind of future that we want to build together, what our stories are, what our roles are in that and what we win and perhaps lose. I'm going to start with highlighting an important excerpt where Clementine talks about maps. How are the stories told through maps? Because in the end, a map is a fantasy. Um, most of these maps were made for this era without people ever having been to any of the places they were talking about. Um, and I think the consideration of map making as an attachment of fact to image is something which I think I'm only coming to terms with in terms of understanding that the picture, the story the map tells is only as good as the information that's on it. Accompanying this podcast, I'm going to include Clementine's presentation for you to look at, but I wanted to try and highlight some of the things that stood out, for me anyway. 
Many early maps were based on oral tradition and personal observations, which could be subjective and error-prone. So when it came to colonisation, there was an interpretation that was brought back for the Western world, which included a lot of myth and also some fantastical but deeply harmful imagery. This was one of the many ways in which colonisers, enslavers and traders indoctrinated wider society, but also garnered support. Storytelling here became a tool of white supremacy. The main focus of Clementine's presentation was her research into games, board games, computer and video games, but it's a thread that she weaves and the profound theme that rises from her analysis that makes this something that really stayed with me. Clementine looked at five games inspired by thoughts around colonisation, exploration, adventure and faith, amongst other things. Across Africa with Livingston, a board game from around 1940, Deutschland's Kolonienspiel, a board game from around 1890, Populous by Bullfrog Productions, released 1989 via Electronic Arts, Black and White from Lionhead Studios, released 2001, and also via Electronic Arts, the popular SimCity published by Maxis in 1989. I'll let her explain further, including why she called her presentation The Toy Box. This is painful, this is traumatic material. I wanted to have an approach to it which didn't traumatize, because I think that there's been enough trauma. But also I wanted to be quite serious about it. And how do you play while being serious? Well, you look at how this subject has been um, treated by uh, the means of games, how it is that children are brought into race and to colonialism and to hierarchy. This particular game is from, I think it's from 1940, I'm not entirely sure, and I'm sure that the museum here can tell me, because I think that this was in an uh, exhibition. I think it was the National Museum of Scotland that had this, and I found it online. In any case, this is a board game, um, and so you have the classic imagery. I'll go on a little bit quicker, so you can see... Ah, the thing that I wanted to point out is that in terms of the world map, you have a very particular construction of who is allowed to travel. Because travelers are different from migrants. Travelers have adventures and they're allowed to move everywhere so they can really play. And everybody else just is a game piece and they have to stay still where they are. And that's where you have the hard boundary between the, the native and um, the missionary. Um, so then in terms of the map, what you do is you have the playing pieces and you go across Africa with Livingston. And in the same game then, you end up somewhere. So you look at who has clothes and who doesn't have clothes and how they're standing. You can tell by the posture what the hierarchy is, right? So I always wonder how you spend such a long time in a place without making friends. Because yeah? I always think that how people relate to each other, who we stand close to and how we look when we look at them. This tells you the relationship without you having the history. So this is um, a German, German colony game very much for the same purpose and for the same age. And this is a trading game from France. All of this stuff is online to find. So you have the rules and you have the maps are very important, but it's also really important that you um, have the roles. And so you have to have hospitals and schools and engineers, because this is again, a way of creating a strict binary between who heals and who is medical. Um, it's also a very strict binary between the modern and the traditional. So you're telling a very particular story. You have really the purpose of all of this, which is 
It's material. This is in French, but it's basically rice and tea and the countries from which these uh, goods come. So you're, because these are plain pieces, you're teaching children what is the function, what is the economic function between a country existing and what you get from it. So it's like a supermarket meaning, basically. This country exists because it delivers this. And this is the function of this country to the person who is playing the game. And what they have to do is they just have to get as much of this as possible, right? It's an interesting education into capitalism and into um, relations between the races. And I imagine everybody who plays this game gets the same education regardless of what their identity is, right? So this goes across um, the boundaries of race. And it's really purely about educating people into consumption. And so at the end of all of that, you get trophies. So you get points and then people are sorted into categories and their value um, to you is the service they deliver to you. And because I was interested in looking at continuities, I really thought about tourism today and whether it's materially changed in terms of who travels and who migrates and who consumes and who produces. Then you have video games. Uh, I don't know very much at all about video games, so I talked to my brother-in-law who told me about populous. And you can read the description yourself, but it's, you start now to get into a real sort of um, play role where actually you decompose the world and then you look at it from above and you decide who moves where, which is always what you do in a game. But in populous, you actually become a god. And the next game I wanted to look at is uh, black and white. Um, which is a real classic god video game. And so you have the one true god, and um, they have our world as you know it. So they have islands, they have tribes, they have vill uh, villagers, but you also have the village store, which is where you put the goods. You get a creature that you train, so that, that creature, again, is on a pain-pleasure binary. If you're nice to the creature, it performs particular tasks, and if it doesn't perform the task to your satisfaction, you punish it. And it's your avatar, and this is how you, um, you train it. So really what you're talking about there is how you distribute power in terms of the area that is interesting to you, your area of influence. So the interesting thing to me about black and white, because black and white is really, when they talk about a black and white binary, they mean a good evil binary. The god is good, and the god is white. And the way in which the villagers are trained to believe in the God player is by the classic relationship, which I think you can demonstrate in when you look at uh, development policy. If you look at what happens with development projects, it's very much the same ethic. If the God has no followers, then you can attack that God's temple, right? And you can destroy the temple because the thing which maintains a God is belief. And it led me to think a little bit about the way that I grew up and um, how my family educated me in Christianity and what happened to the gods which were no longer worshipped after Christianity. So um, I thought that this was a really interesting game because when you design a video game, you're not designing a video game because you want to bring in history or educate people in hierarchy. You're doing it because it's fun. Because if it's not fun, it doesn't sell, right? And so I thought it'd be nice to look at something completely unrelated to the museum and to see whether I could find strands there in the modern, which had continuities with what was happening 
in terms of this sort of education. Um, and then we get to something that a lot of people might recognize. I mean, SimCity is quite old. We come to really what happens when you start to apply video game ethics to urban policy. And if you look at the really large data projects, the surveillance data projects, for instance, the one they're running, the GANS database in London, it functions very, in very similar ways to SimCity because the original urban simulation, which uh, SimCity was based on, was used with politicians for them to be, while they were campaigning, they also used these simulations to implement their proposed policies. One of the interesting things I thought, and on the link with SimCity, there is an actual video which explains to you what an urban simulation game like SimCity has to do with how you plan where people live. And that's why I decided to call this presentation the Toy Box. Because if you look at um, a game like that, you are not able to see how the rules have been written which run the game. So it's a black box algorithm. All the algorithms are concealed. But apparently, when you play that particular game to win, what you have to do is you have to take out all the schools, you have to take out all the hospitals, you have to take out all the social services, and you have to increase the police presence. And when you have a space which is anonymous and in which all of the buildings are exactly the same, you have a population which lives to 60, you have a very high proportion of the population being police, and at that point, you've actually run a successful game. That is how to win at SimCity. It is a little bit of a grin. Um, if that is the toy box with which we are playing for the future that we would like to have in a time of climate crisis, I think that we have to start to think a little bit differently. As a result of a process in which I didn't want particularly to be re-traumatized by um, going into really colonial violence, right? Because we are circling all the time around topics which produce, sometimes depending on how you are positioned, not very much emotion in some people and very high levels of emotion in other people. I didn't want to enter that field taking it too seriously. You know, this is what I loved about the approach that you use, is how do you deal with this without repeating or reproducing? the disconnection in relationships, which has happened in the past and continues to happen. Play begins to cross over with reality um, and where it produces interesting questions for the future, for the future that we imagine together, when we imagine a future which is that of care. Some of the things that jumped out for me from Clementine's superb presentation and analysis were thoughts surrounding the difficulty in changing if you're not allowed to be anything else and potentially the conformity around things, which perhaps comes not only from ownership, but the beliefs taught to others, the psychological differences and ignorance around immigration versus travel and adventure. The importance of belief and who buys into this. The way in which these fundamental beliefs are taught through the disconnection of gaming which is something which entertains but forgets the violation that has influenced it. And finally, something that I will explore further in our final episode. And as Clementine puts it, the future that we imagine together when we imagine a future, which is that of care. The thread of storytelling continues through all these mediums, through entertainment, belief, faith and conformity. 
But what have the costs been and how can we change the narrative? But also, how can we use this to look at the stories we tell ourselves? I'm going to bring in some new voices now. As part of the event, a number of the creatives taking part in their own commissions gathered together for an informal panel and discussion about their work and their relationship to storytelling and community. Those people were Tamiwa Folorancho, who we have already met, spoken words artist Inga Dale, who we met in our last episode, writer, curator, organiser Leila Roxanne Hill, who co-wrote Black Out Here, Black Lives in Scotland, and someone we will hear from more in our final episode. Etienne Cabuabo, filmmaker, writer and creator of popular comic series Beats of War, featuring Scotland's first black superhero. And finally, Divine Tacinda, a professional choreographer, dancer, designer and model and one of the owners of 360 Company. Obviously, this whole weekend is about storytelling and myth and memories and stories themselves, as well as the storytellers. You know, today we're in a museum do you think museums are good storytellers? It's an interesting question and something I've never thought of before, going into a museum and thinking of, thinking of it as a space that tells stories, but I suppose that it is. Um, but I think it also depends on who's curating uh, an exhibition and what's the story they're trying to tell. If the curators of a space comes from a certain lived experience, the story that they are going to tell is from their lens or their perception of how they see the world. Perhaps certain exhibitions can tell a story historically but doesn't really delve deep into the lived experiences of what an artifact is representing. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're in a museum that shows an artifact of a bull like from Africa, yeah, it, it tells you something about it factually, but there's no like emotional attachment to it and mm -hmm. there's no link to lived experiences and what that meant to the community that was using this bull, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that it definitely depends on who is telling that story, you know? Because, um, yeah, I mean, personally, a museum, we go in to see stories. We go in to learn history. We go in to um, explore and take in new information that perhaps we didn't have before. But it, it does come down to really who's telling that story and also knowing that everybody, just because everybody's seeing the same fire doesn't mean everyone is going to describe it the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think as physical spaces, like they can be pretty incredible. Like they can offer a lot of peace. They can offer a lot of connection, mm -hmm. um, like as, as a physical space. But mm -hmm. then it's also like who, who's able to access that space. Yeah. Um, and who feels comfortable being in that space. And I always remember like having a conversation with a taxi driver um, who was born and brought up in Glasgow and had never been to Kelvin Grove you know, Museum and said that that space wasn't for him. Mm -hmm. Like he just didn't feel comfortable. So I was like, well, you know, what's your interests? It was football. And I said, well, what if there was like a exhibition on that had, that focused on your favorite team? Not going to mention what that team was. <laughs> Um, and he was like, maybe, but I just wouldn't feel comfortable going into that space. And I know, especially for a lot of, you know, black people, 
if you're going into a museum and it is usually a very white space both in terms of the people that are in there but also how it looks and you know you're maybe seeing like instruments or items from your country with no real context that can be quite an isolating experience as mm -hmm. well you feel that people are looking at you questioning why you're there what's your interest but I think also when you go back to the curatorial side of it it's what histories are kept you know what's important who deems items to be of value and why and why show them we know that there's sometimes things that are kept and they're kept in storage for a very very long time and then they're not put out or they're put out because it becomes quite popular or trendy you know or it's black history month or we're starting to have a conversation about colonialism so let's stick that let's bring all the objects out but i think also um like lives and experiences and ideas which offer an alternative vision or an alternative to like the dominant ideology or the status quo that probably won't be shown because that might give people some radical ideas yeah <laughs> yeah there is something in that inaccessibility of the space and it just makes me think as well how in a sense how unnatural it is to kind of be in a museum and to look at all this stuff and taking in all this information but you're not really allowed to touch anything and you have to be quiet and you have to follow it in this certain you know the path or the route that the curator has created and that can be very overwhelming and it's just a bit like why am I here and maybe not always the the best way to engage, yeah. I think as well. Um, to move a little bit away from um, from museums and thinking more so about our stories, you are all creators and practitioners or artists um, in different forms of storytelling. And I'd really like to hear about, if you feel it's important, firstly, I suppose, to tell your story or our story and why we should be telling our stories through art um, or through creativity. I think telling our stories through art and creativity is like, uh, I'll speak for myself, uh, it's like keeping the five-year ATN alive because I remember growing up, I've always loved stories and are going to a lot of trouble for watching too much TV or reading a lot of comic books and stories have always been part of me and I've always felt like uh, me living in Africa, coming from Africa and then coming to Scotland, how can I tell a story that is so original and unique to myself? Because everybody's got different life experiences and your story might be different from my story. So it was really important for me to go back to the roots of who I am, where I come from, my culture, and how can I bring that and be as honest as possible uh, through stories. So mm -hmm. yeah, even that's why with Beats of War, there's two worlds, one that represents where I come from and Scotland, which is my new home. So yeah, yeah. staying true to yourself really. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, staying true to yourself. And oh, like, we, we tell stories through art because art is life. Yeah. Art is your day-to-day -day thing that you experience. Like, think about the amount of time we all listen to music, right? Like, you might not necessarily always watch a dance video on YouTube or Instagram, but the amount of time you have your earphones on, you're listening to someone tell their story, the amount of time you're passing by a street and there's an advertisement on the bus, on the wall. The amount of time we are 
conversating with people, we are living that story as it's happening. Always knowing that you have your own voice and your own platform to tell your version of your story the way that you want it to be perceived, you know, from your own voice, from your own true opinion and how you perceive and how you see your story. And even when somebody else has experienced what you've experienced, but the way you both felt about it is still different. Whether people acknowledge it or not, art moves us. And we're also experts in our own lived experience. So we need to be able to tell our own stories because I feel when other people tell our stories for us, it can become problematic. I think it's also like figuring out like the ways in which like art and creativity is like projected or how that's also contained as well. And just going back to what we're saying, like there's a creativity and there's an artisticness in all of us. But then a lot of people go, well, I'm not creative, you know, I'm not artistic, that that's not for me in much the same way about museums. But when you think about like how, you know, museums are like those silent places, but like creativity is not a silent process. You know, it's like our mm. stories are not a silent process. There's creativity in the way that we do our hair. There's creativity in the way that you put a meal together. You know, putting together a photo album, that's creative. Okay that's a cultural experience, like that's artistic at the moment. I wanted to follow up, I think, with, and I don't even really like using the word audiences all the time, but for audiences, for communities, for society, what is the power of telling our story? Like, is there a power? What is that power? When we tell our own stories, it also avoids homogenizing an entire group. I think that, um, African people are homogenized in a certain way, um, and that's also due to movies. And, I mean, if you watch um, comedies, right, and they speak about Africa, it's always Africa as a place, mm. and that place has animals and tribes, mm. and that's it. <laughs> so every time someone asks you about, like I went to the States um, and I said I'm from South Africa and just the questions that I was asked, I was, how do you not know that there's development in, in Africa and um, there are cities, you know, um, I don't live in a hut. Um, so if we were able to, able to tell our stories even through movies, if we had more black directors and scriptwriters, it will break away that homogenized version of the way people view us. But I think the power of story is enables us not to forget who we are. Mm -hmm. And if you forget who you are and who are you as a human being, and I think um, that's the thing I've always put in my art, in, in writing and creating stuff. How do I have my voice in everything that I'm doing? I think everyone brought such a unique view to that panel and prompted a number of further reflections for me, including the ongoing subject of museum accessibility. And I think that can be viewed in a binary way at times, whereby people look at the physicalities of access, often in terms of disability. Whilst that is such an important subject, I think we have to remember access in terms of income, race, mental health, sexuality and more. As mentioned during this conversation, the isolation this brings is overwhelming. Tamiwa's observations about museums, how things might not be touched, there must be quiet and the direction in which you're appointed to experience a museum, is such a contradiction to many of the African interactions with art and its creativity. 
the vibrancy, the community, the noise and the lack of conformity is what makes it feel not so much a juxtaposition, that feels like too much of a polite term, but more something that drains the core expression of what many of these artefacts and subsequent stories brought. Heritage is something that brings a lot of pride to people. And whether people are mixed heritage or they have emigrated to Scotland from Africa, there is a desire to hold on to roots and let them form stories and identities. But there is also a need for people to process their emotions and to make sense of their experiences. The cultural values and perseverance of history is also something I think we need to remember, especially when you have systems at play who dismantle that for personal gain and power. One of the other many highlights of this conversation for me include Inga's point about one story not representing the masses and her views around homogenization, which alters a natural structure and brings a lack of diversity, loss of knowledge and practices that have been important for the survival of certain communities. It can also be viewed as a form of cultural imperialism in which dominant cultures and values are imposed on others without their consent. That in itself can strip a story of all its worth and destroy what made it so important in the first place. And as for the power and importance of creativity in storytelling, well, I think Leila Roxanne puts it perfectly when they say that creativity within many of our communities is through things we perhaps don't even realise. When we do our hair, when we make a meal, everyone has creativity in them. We can bring more of that authentic storytelling and creativity into the quiet, still, often conformed places like museums. We end this episode with another taste of Tamira's essay, which she co-wrote with Hamza Hussein, Gar Il Home. I think it brings back into focus the bridges we build between our worlds, our timelines and our relationships, which all add to our own stories and how powerful they can be. The feeling of a plane starting its descent over Edinburgh will never get old. It feels safe, feels easy, and for those last few minutes, it feels like it's just me as I stare down below, ticking off the people and places in my mind's eye. My brother, Portobello, Jen, Leith, my mum, New Haven, Liam, Muir House, Alice's, Silver Knives, Down, Home. Home is arriving into a virtually empty Waverley station at 11.30pm and stepping out onto the bridge, staring up at the Scots Monument as the rain hits my face. Home is culture, home is comfort, home is my dad kissing the top of my head, mum squeezing my cheeks before bed and Deji putting his arm around me as we walk through security in Lagos Airport. Home is my cousin shouting my name in the smell of plantain. It's Emily asking, asking me if I want some tea and sitting on the step outside Wildfire with Lindsay. Home is riding on the top deck of the number 11 bus at 6.30am, making its way down New Haven Road and watching the sunrise around Arthur's seat. Home is Kirsten and Alice and Kirsty and Lexi too. It's the smell of Olivia's nonna's house and the Omni Centre at the top of Elm Row. It's the M&S food court on a sad day and Victoria Park on a good one. Home is safe and it holds you. It protects you, it loves you, and it comforts you. Next time, in our final episode, we explore how we collectively imagine our futures. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about David Livingston Birthplace and make up your own mind, they are located in Blantyre, and we will provide more information in the show notes to accompany this episode. This podcast from The Skinny was presented by me, Ailey Akaladi, produced, recorded and edited by Helena Rafai and is in partnership with We Are Here Scotland. The live recordings were made by Hamish Campbell of Sound Sound. This series was commissioned by David Livingstone Birthplace and was made possible through funding from Museums Galleries Scotland. <laughs>